Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU Freeform Station of the Nation, live from downtown Jersey City in that great state we all know called New Jersey. Happy to be here. Thanks for joining. Great interview. Great interview to share with you this evening with Pat Garofalo, who writes the Boondoggle newsletter. He also works at the American Economic Liberties Project there in Washington, D.C., which we'll cover briefly at the end of the interview. And I'm going to tell you more about Pat Garofalo and uh, this, this interview here in a moment. But just to lead into it, let me just say... Uh, I had a nice week last week. I um, I had an out-of-town trip, and it had me driving down the so-called Delmarva Peninsula again. That's the uh, that's the peninsula that includes Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. And this time, I'm happy to report that I did not get coal rolled as I did on a previous trip down there. <laughs> And it was a it was a nice drive uh, both ways down and back, but the reason I'm bringing it up is because if you ever if you ever take that route right at the bottom of the New Jersey Turnpike as you as you um, are just about to go into Delaware you have to cross the Delaware Memorial Bridge, and on the New Jersey side of the bridge, if I'm remembering right, is it on the New Jersey side or the Delaware side? Anyway, on one of the sides. Um, there is a giant, I mean, a giant building that is just being constructed right now. Uh, and as I drove past, I noted that just given the scale of this thing, this was no ordinary, you know, big box store or factory or something. This looked like the kind of alien-sized, ginormous building that I'm seeing all over the East Coast. And I, I drive to see friends or family fairly often around the East Coast, and I see a lot of these buildings that I'm talking about when I drive into central Pennsylvania, which I do from time to time, and I see these gi- just giant, unbelievably scaled buildings. The, the best way I can describe these, if you, have, you've pro- you probably have seen them wherever you live, but if you haven't, if you ever saw that movie uh, by Mike Judge called Idiocracy, you remember that from this is a, several years ago. It was prescient in a number of ways. But there's one shot in the movie Idiocracy where they they have this um they're they're setting the context of some of the scenes. So it's an outdoor shot showing from a distance this enormous building that is just comically big. It's like 1 mile on on each side. And it's supposed to be, in the future, how big Walmart gets. Because when Mike Judge made that movie, the big megacorp for retail at that time was Walmart, which I guess it still is somewhat. But it's, it's really, these days, the mega buildings are Amazon fulfillment centers. If you drive through central Pennsylvania and many other parts of the country, you will see these. The, the building just goes on and on and on and on, one building, on, and you just think, hey, it's idiocracy. Here we are. Now, let me give a tip. If it has trucks, if you see one of these alien buildings and it has trucks in the parking lot next to it, it's a fulfillment center. This is where they distribute the, the, uh, all, all, all the boxes to then put on the trucks to then drive to people's neighborhoods. Um, and you can go back and listen to an interview I did on a book called Fulfillment um, several months ago where we talk about that business. So if, if they're trucks, it's a fulfillment center. If there are not trucks, it's likely a data center. And the data center is a giant, giant, giant building full of computer servers and just a, a very few people who are watching over the computer servers, I guess, to see if one burns out. They can plug another one in, something like that. Because Amazon, of course, is not just a retail company. It's the company that has the service called AWS. Amazon Web Services, which is the cloud hosting platform that that um, is is very popular these days, and that is run the cloud, as it's called, is just a series of data centers all over the country and all over the world. 
And so I don't know on, at, at, on whichever side it was on the Delaware Memorial Bridge, I don't know if that was a fulfillment center or a data center. In fact, I don't, I'm not even sure it was Amazon. But it got me to thinking uh, that it would, it would be an, a nice tie-in with this evening's interview with Pat Garofalo because Pat writes this newsletter called Boondoggle, which you're going to hear about. It's, it's about, as he says, about how corporations take advantage of states, cities, and local communities forcing these, these communities to um, make really bad deals with these already very wealthy corporations. And what caught my eye, re- I've read Boondoggle for a long time, and what caught my eye recently was a piece on June 27 about, as he says, as Pat writes, Amazon's secret data center dealings. And as you'll hear, it's basically a, a scam that Amazon runs on communities to foist this really bad deal on the taxpayers to get the tax taxpayers to both pay Amazon for the privilege of having a data center built in their neighborhood and not to know about it because all of the dealings are secret. They're made to be secret. It's, it's just a terrible, terrible uh, arrangement. It's really a scam. And you will hear Pat use the word scam in this interview. And so every time you drive by one of these giant buildings, you can think whether it's a data center or a fulfillment center, it very well could have been the result of a scam, the kind of which Pat Garofalo writes about in his Boondoggle newsletter. So I want to run you this interview right now. I really enjoyed talking with Pat. You're going to learn something about how these deals are made, and we will talk about more than just Amazon Uh, because scams from corporations to communities are not limited to big tech, although big tech is certainly leading the way, as they do with all kinds of scams and corruption. Uh, But the scams that Pat writes about are not limited to big tech. So let's hear this interview. Um, If you want to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org, click playlists and comments. Or if you're listening in the future, go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm, and find the August 14, 2023 show and click on that playlist link and you can read what people are saying. Okay, let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Pat Garofalo here on Tectonic on WFMU. Pat Garofalo, welcome to Tectonic. Hey, very happy to be here. Great to have you on the show. You're the author of the Boondoggle email newsletter, which you write is the newsletter about corporations ripping off our states, cities, and communities. I've been a longtime subscriber and always enjoy seeing the Boondoggle issues come into my inbox. There's also a book from 2019 you wrote, The Billionaire Boondoggle, How Our Politicians Let Corporations and Bigwigs Steal Our Money and Jobs. Definitely a theme you're working on here, Pat. Yeah, the, the thing I like about that title is just how subtle it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read between the lines, and I think I have a, a sense <laughs> of where you're headed. You're also at the American Economic Liberties Project. You're director of state and local policy there. Maybe we can talk about that project. But I want to start with your boondoggle newsletter, specifically an issue from June 27, 2023. The headline is revealed Amazon's secret data center dealings. This is not the first time you've talked about Amazon's data center dealings. This is in Frederick County, Maryland. You also covered it early in 2022, in a newsletter in February 2022. So this is a kind of an update. But basically, Amazon, through its Amazon Web Services, AWS, is building data centers all over the U.S., and you have been covering how this mega corporation is working with public officials against the public interest with NDAs, that is non-disclosure agreements, and all sorts of other ways of affecting public policy that people may not be aware of. So I wanted to dive into this a little bit. Can you give us a little background on what's happening in Frederick County, Maryland? Yeah, so I think I'm actually going to back up even a step further, if that's okay, which is that I think most people are pretty familiar with Amazon's attempts to get the public to subsidize the various parts of its necessary business infrastructure. The most famous is the Amazon HQ2, 
debacle in which Amazon announced it was going to build a second headquarters and had hundreds of cities all over the country uh, jumping at the opportunity to pay tens, hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars to Amazon for this uh, second facility. Uh, a step down from that is Amazon's distribution system. Its warehouses and distribution and fulfillment centers are often subsidized by the public. They receive giant tax breaks. They receive cheap land. They receive regulatory favors. They receive all sorts of stuff, again, sometimes in the hundreds of millions of dollars for individual facilities. There was one uh, up in Niagara, New York, that received $120 million uh, in public money for one, <laughs> for one single distribution center. Wait a second. Wait a second, Pat. I, you're on a roll. I'm sorry to stop you, but I covered this HQ2 debacle, you correctly called it, and I was so glad to see it fail in New York so that I, as a New York state taxpayer, did not have to pay into the whatever it was, $3 billion donation fund for Amazon to build this thing here. But <laughs> you're saying that in upstate New York and Niagara, which is not a very wealthy part of New York okay. state, you're saying that taxpayers were on the hook for over $100 million to give to Amazon in order to build a distribution center? Exactly. You got it. And this sort of thing happens all over, all the time. Amazon has received, the count is definitely in the billions of dollars. It might be closing in on $6 billion across the country uh, in public subsidies. Most of that is for warehouse and distribution centers. But what brought us here and why I wanted to kind of take that step back is because uh, it also receives public funding for its data centers, uh, which are, go ahead. I'm sorry again. Why does Amazon need all these public subsidies? It does not. It's a giant scam. It has convinced state officials, local county officials, mayors, city councilors, uh, and perhaps most importantly, the kind of corporate subsidy machine, which is folks who work in local economic development offices. And in New York, you actually have one of the most wretched uh, systems of uh, local economic development in the country. Amazon has convinced these folks that this is a good investment for the public to build these facilities and get some level of job creation, economic activity. The case is nonsense. The empirical evidence shows that these facilities are actually bad for the local economy. They drag down wages, they destroy jobs, they harm local retailers. And I'm just not I'm not saying that's just like anecdotal, although that should also be obvious. There has been actual academic studies done on this that shows that an Amazon facility opens Wages in the local area go down, local retailers close, all sorts of bad stuff happens, and the effects actually don't dissipate for about 100 miles away from the distribution center. But they've made this to those kind of corrupt local economic development officials, this compelling case that this stuff needs to be subsidized. It's really bad. It's a giant scam. And it's not even the scam we started talking about yet. <laughs> <laughs> because that's just the the distribution centers. Then we get to data centers. I imagine it's all of the same externalities or harms to the local community to have a data center. And I'm jumping ahead, but I had this in mind that I wanted to bring up. For a data center, there's a huge load on the water supply too, right? Yeah. So the case actually for a data center is even worse to my mind uh, than for subsidizing HQ2 or a warehouse, though all of them are bad. A data center, right, for Amazon Web Services, a data center is absolutely necessary business infrastructure. There is no Amazon Web Services without these facilities. It doesn't exist as a business. So you're you are having the public literally build the business's infrastructure on the public dime. But also the idea that these facilities foster any sort of economic development is nonsense. Almost nobody works in them maybe 50 jobs in one of those facilities, maybe. And most of those aren't tech jobs, right? Most of those are kind of low-paid, no-benefit, janitorial security type situations, not the sort of jobs you build a sustainable local economy on. They cause no knock-on economic effects because it's just a giant building that doesn't look like anything and that no one actually needs to be at. In fact, I would argue they blunt local economic development because no one wants to build anything next to these things. They just sit there by themselves, surrounded by acres of parking, doing nothing. And then to your question, and this has become really controversial in, in other parts of the country, less so on the East Coast, but out in the West, uh, where they are having more uh, resource problems than we are here back East, uh, and I'm down in Washington, D.C., for reference. Um, there have been a lot of controversies about the uh, water and power use of these facilities. And 
Amazon and the other tech companies, Google, Facebook, will often fight to keep secret how much water and how much power these facilities are using so that local communities actually don't find out just how bad uh, a deal this is for them. Uh, but yet you are ultimately at the end of the day talking about this super profitable corporation, one of if not the most powerful corporations in the country, if not the world, having its business infrastructure built at public expense. It's completely ridiculous, uh, which brings us to Frederick County. Okay. You mentioned the secrecy that they don't want local communities to know how much water and power they're, they're drawing down. And that's just the beginning of the, the secrecy, the interest in secrecy on the part of Amazon. They don't want the public to know anything at all about the deal. They don't even want the public to know that they're thinking of making a deal with the local community. As you say in the piece, it's icky all the way down. What is the deal with secrecy and how did that play out in this particular case you've been writing about now for a year and a half in Frederick County, north of uh, D.C. and Maryland? So Amazon, during these corporate subsidy deals, is very aggressive in its use of non-disclosure agreements. It requires public officials, this is including county commissioners, mayors, town councilors, anybody who works in the elected office, that may have to weigh in on this deal to sign an NDA when it's considering bringing a facility to a particular area. It also requires, again, the kind of corrupt economic development bureaucracy people to sign these agreements. And Amazon is not alone in this. Lots of big corporations use this tactic when they're coming in to make a corporate subsidy deal in a community. But Amazon is particularly aggressive and has forced them onto more people in these dealings than most corporations do. And the very explicit point of these is to ensure that there is no public feedback when these deals are being negotiated. They want to make sure that until it's all done, dusted, finalized, out there, we are receiving X dollars in return for this data center, warehouse, whatever the heck it is, that no one gets to have, that's to like kind of pop out of the woodwork and say, hey, maybe this isn't such a great idea. For a community. And this is all sounding really bleak and I'm sounding bad, but this is actually a kind of happy story because that brings us to Frederick County, Maryland, where folks in the local community got wind that something was up, right? They were noticing folks in suits around. People were being asked for like estimates on how much it would cost for them to sell their land. They just kind of got the sense. This is a, a rural community. It's, you know, maybe hour, hour and a half away from Washington, D.C. in Maryland. It's beautiful. There's a lot of agriculture. I go hiking there. It's a really pretty part of the country. Um, and it's a sm like it's a, you know, kind of small, tight-knit community. They noticed something was up. And everyone got to talking to each other. A bunch of local activists got together, had the sense that there was an Amazon deal going on. And they actually very cleverly used pretty good state open meetings law in Maryland they complained to the state, it's called the Open Meetings Board, essentially, and said, hey, we think our local elected officials are holding secret meetings with Amazon uh, and breaking state law while doing so. They got a uh, ruling back from the state board that, yes, in fact, that's exactly what was happening. County commissioners and local city councilors had all been illegally meeting with Amazon about this proposed data center and whatever uh, sort of stuff would be needed to facilitate the building of this data center, including taking land away from what is like a nature preserve in order to give it to Amazon. Oh, uh, nice. It's like protected land. Yeah, really nice. And so it all became public and Amazon ultimately pulled out of the project because they were like, whoa, there needs to be public involvement in this. Like, we're not here for that. We don't we don't do that. We don't let the plebes come in and like have their say. Um, and Amazon ultimately pulled the plug. And so now we're fast forwarding about a year and the folks who led that effort have been filing Freedom of Information Act requests with the various governmental bodies, and uh, courts have ruled that all of this information now needs to start coming out. So they've been winning their court cases over uh, Freedom of Information Act requests and getting all this great stuff. So what I was able to write about was the way in which the Maryland State Department of Commerce was helping to facilitate these secret dealings, was helping to facilitate the signing of NDAs, was pressuring other bodies in the Maryland government to stay quiet about the deal, was arguing for anonymity with other portions of the Maryland state government, even when Maryland state law said those dealings should have been public. One of the most striking things was that Amazon was going to need sort of public right of way for its cables 
to this data center. And under Maryland state law, that should have been a public process. But the State Commerce Department was going around and saying, actually, could we keep that secret too, even though we know the law says not to, because of air quote business competitive reasons. So really just the records and kudos to the folks there. They're called the Sugar Loaf Alliance. They've done a ton of really great work. Kudos to them for following through this and like getting all these records out there for people like me to dig through because it just showed the extent to which, and this is really true in New York too, this like ugly economic development bureaucracy grossness occurs for long stretches of time before the public ever gets an inkling that something may be happening in their backyard. So what you have is a giant, trillion plus dollar company that comes into a community, tells the local officials, don't tell anyone that it's us because we intend to break the law multiple times. (laughs) And we intend for the public to pay us in order to bring this terrible deal into their community. So, I mean, the, the need for secrecy is obvious. If anyone caught wind of what they were doing, all kinds of stuff would happen. Then it go, it goes so far as other areas of the government also working on Amazon's behalf, trying to keep things secret. For what was it? Business competitive reasons? Business competitive reasons. And this is like the kind of big fallacy that's, I call it economic development brain. It's kind of taken over. The people who work on this stuff, both on the public side and the agencies, and on the private side, so those are your like site selection consultants and all the kind of people who grease the skids to get this public money flowing. They all have economic development brain. They all get it in their minds that it is actually the secrecy is a necessary ingredient of facilitating these deals in the name of the public good when actually it's the exact opposite. The public benefits from an open, competitive kind of auction process, right? Because you can imagine a world in which Amazon says, we would like you know, X million dollars to build a facility here. And we're going to pay Y dollars below market cost for the land. But some other company sees that and says, actually, we'll bring our facility in for less than that. What do you think, Marilyn? Um, And it actually works out better uh, for the state. But everybody gets public, gets economic development brain. And they think you, I get air quotes. I know I'm on the radio, but I'm doing air quotes all the time. Air quote, need to keep these things secret so that other jurisdictions and other corporations don't find out when it's better for everyone to have this whole process either a not exist in the first place right like the the whole economic development model is broken but if it's going to exist having it be public and transparent and have multiple players bidding for the same parcel of land or the same facility is actually beneficial to the public i just i mean amazon is so clearly a monopoly like all of these big tech firms they're striving to protect their monopoly And for them to say that we need this to be secret for competitive reasons, what, is there another trillion-dollar corporation that was going to come in that we didn't know about? Give me a break. Right, and and this is absolutely about monopoly maintenance, right? Because if you think about the folks who would be upset about these deals and that Amazon is trying to cut out the process, it's local businesses, it's local retailers, it's the folks who never get these sort of deals and never get their necessary infrastructure paid for by the public. And so that results in higher costs for them, you know, inability to pay higher wages, higher prices, all these sort of negative things for local businesses result from Amazon getting these sort of deals. So they are the ones who would be most upset and most inclined to say, hey, county commissioner X, hey, mayor Z, like, please don't do this. And that's who Amazon wants to cut out of the process. I'm not an economic development expert. <laughs> like you are. I, I don't have any of this expertise. I'm just a generalist. I'm a fan of your newsletter. I've, I know what I've read from your newsletter. I think it's better to not be an expert. Once you become an expert, you get economic <laughs> development brain. <Okay>. It's bad. <laughs> but it just seems so obvious to me that on the one hand, we have a closed secretive process where we're privileging the interests of a trillion dollar company to do whatever it wants and to get the public to pay for their development. That's door number A. (laughs) Door number B (laughs) is an open, transparent process that gets comment from local citizens, local small businesses, and allows the democratic process to take shape like we're supposed to in this nominal democracy that we live in. I don't know, which one should we use, the closed secretive process or the open democratic process? Gosh, what do we think is going to have a better outcome? Can you tell me, Pat, 
why does it always go to the closed process? Why is it? I know money and power, maybe that's the answer, but I don't want to be cynical here. Why are we defaulting to the wrong process? I mean, the answer is going to be pretty much where you were headed. Um, And folks realize this is going on. If we, once again, to the Niagara deal, there was a requirement in that Niagara deal that there be a public meeting before the hundred plus million dollar deal was consummated. And they held it at like two o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday with like 18 hours notice. And folks, to their credit, a few folks did go and stand up and say, hey, this is super inappropriate. It's in the middle of the workday. People can't get here. They're at their jobs. Like to call this public notice is a joke. Um, But that is all, all this stuff is intentionally built in to the system, even when they're supposed to be public processes. And that was my lead up into saying the reason this stuff persists uh, the way that it does is not for any economic reason. It's purely political reasons. The academic research and our real world experience shows that, sadly, politicians who engage in more of this economic development corporate subsidy deal making win more votes in subsequent elections. Just fact, straight up, it's good for your political career because it builds political capital in the sense that you get to claim you created all these jobs, you get to send out a press release, you get to do the tweets, you get to show up at a groundbreaking with the stupid shovel and the hard hat, right? You get to do all this stuff that gives the impression that you are doing your job. Um, One of my favorite, and by that I mean most depressing stats, is that one of the surest ways to predict whether your state is going to increase its corporate subsidy spending in a given year is not to look at any economic indicator. Don't look at jobs, don't look at poverty, don't look at GDP growth, don't look at income growth, none of that. Simply check and see if your incumbent governor is up for re-election that year. It is one of the most surefire ways to predict that your state is going to increase its corporate subsidy spending that year because governors realize that this stuff wins votes. And then you get into, right, there's also a lot of research showing that there's a nasty feedback loop between corporations that receive subsidies and their future political donations, companies that engage in more lobbying and more political giving win more subsidies, right? It gets into this whole gross money and politics area. But purely as a political tool, sadly, these things work at the end of that process. When these projects individually go up for public debate and comment, they tend to get defeated because people understand in the moment that this thing right now, this very specific idea of giving a bunch of money to Amazon for this particular warehouse is bad and they don't like it. But in the aggregate, they do tend to move votes. And so it's the job of like people like me and you to try and change that over the long term. But that's why it persists. That's really interesting. I thought it was going to be more, if you let this deal go through, we're going to give you a campaign contribution next time around. And you said that that does happen to some extent, but the primary driver is just when people, did I understand right, when when the citizens see the groundbreaking and they hear or see the press release about jobs created, we got a new data center, that's enough to drive the votes, just seeing the thing go up. And it's not until, it's not until right usually years later when they realize all those promises have been broken, that they see how bad the deal has been. And by that point, right, is the political actor even in that office anymore? Like if you look back, one of the most famous right, economic development boondoggles was Foxconn in Wisconsin, um, which ultimately did cost former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker his job because it was such a gigantic debacle that got tons of attention. And President Trump said it was going to be the eighth wonder of the world and all this nonsense. Um, and eventually he did lose because of it, largely because of that deal. But it took a while because you don't immediate, you the political capital is built immediately in the press releases and the news reports and the news about how this project is going to create X thousand jobs and do Y and Z in a community. And it takes a while before you realize that none of that happened. And in the interim, right, the politician was able to reap those political benefits. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Pat Garofalo, who writes the boondoggle email newsletter about how corporations, typically very large corporations, rip off communities and states with a variety of scams, one of which we learned about in depth just now, how Amazon, and this is not unique to Amazon, but Amazon is 
trying to perfect this scam of issuing non-disclosure agreements to communities so that local lawmakers will not tell the taxpayers that the taxpayers will be asked to pay Amazon to put up a new data center. Uh, as I say, this is not unique to big tech, and so in the second half of the interview, we're going to be talking about other kinds of scams that Pat has written about in his newsletter. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org, click playlist and comments. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Pat Garofalo here on Tectonic on WFMU. Okay, we should acknowledge that in your work on the Boondoggle newsletter, you're covering more than just development deals for big tech corporations and warehouses and data centers. You've also written quite a bit, and I know you wrote in your book, The Billionaire Boondoggle, about sports stadiums. This is a category of subsidized project that I just, I love to hate. And again, you're the expert. I've generally read about these through your writing, Pat, but every mention I see of a new stadium going up, it's always at public expense in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Billions now. Billions now. Fantastic. Yeah. Just had a couple clear the billion. On April 26 of this year, you wrote a piece called Inside the Sports Subsidy Industrial Complex. And so here you did a, a deep dive on a publicly funded arena in Tempe, Arizona, for, as you said, the long-lamented Arizona Coyotes, a sad sack National Hockey League franchise. Why does the public have to be asked, or maybe not asked, to pay for a new arena? You write, the Coyotes currently play in a college hockey arena while they wait on the Tempe vote, which would provide them with about $500 million in tax breaks and another $250 million or so in diverted taxes that uh, would be plowed back into a new district that will supposedly be built around the arena. So did I get all that right? And, and, and what's been happening since then? And is this indicative of what you see out there when new sports arenas go up? Absolutely. Over the last several decades, it's become extremely common practice, as you just said, for the public to spend incredibly large sums of money building sports stadiums. The uh, leagues, the professional sports leagues have gotten very good, similar to the way that Amazon has gotten very good at extracting these subsidies, mostly by threatening to move franchises, right? They say, build me a new stadium, arena, whatever the thing is, or we move your team to some other city and rip the heart out of your local community, right? We think of professional sports teams as like part of the fabric of the community, almost a community asset, but they're not. They're a business that's usually owned by a billionaire. And the threat to tear that away often works and facilitates these deals. And the politicians in office at the moment don't want to be the person who loses the team to some other city, right? You don't want to be the person in uh, Baltimore who lost the Colts. Like you just don't want to be that guy. The good news here is that the public has in large part caught on to this scam because when these deals are put before the public and, you know, that can be facilitated through referendums in a lot of places, uh, they tend to vote them down. And that's actually the good news out of Tempe is that the arena deal lost. And very convincingly, when it did come up on the ballot, the arena opponent, the, the publicly funded arena opponents who were outspent 35 to 1, won across the board. There were three questions. They needed to win on all three. They won on all three. Um, it was a really great moment for folks like me who are out there making this case. But the downside of that is that the sports teams are increasingly moving towards the kind of secrecy that we talked about with Amazon. There was a oh, recently, a, yeah, the recently a deal uh, that made it through the Nevada legislature to build a stadium uh, in Las Vegas for the Oakland A's, who have been agitating for years for a new stadium in Oakland and haven't gotten it. And so now it looks like you're going to move to Las Vegas. And that thing was like, wham, bam, through the state legislature in a special session. I'm sure people weren't even reading the bill. And so they've resorted, the teams have resorted to those sort of tactics. Actually, just this morning, one of those billion-dollar stadium deals occurred down in Tennessee this year for the Tennessee Titans to get a new stadium in Nashville. Um, and they held municipal and state primary elections last night. And stadium supporters got 
wiped out at both the Nashville city level and in a bunch of state house races. So that to me is encouraging news that the public actually does get it. They realize that like the kind of smarmy, like white dude who owns your sports team, like probably doesn't need several hundred million or a billion public dollars to build this thing that's going to enable them to make a lot more money. Um, so the sports teams have increasingly been uh, resorting to secrecy and speed and a lot of obfuscation. And the thing I wrote about in that piece was that there are these economic, supposedly economic forecasting firms that run around making these studies. And again, I'm air quoting everyone's studies about how every stadium is going to be great for the local economy. It's going to create all these jobs, all this knock on economic activity, you know, rainbows and unicorns are going to fall from the sky onto your community and everything's going to be great. And it's just all a giant scam. One of the main creators of those studies is this company called Convention Sports and Leisure, which is owned in part by the owners of the Dallas Cowboys and the New York Yankees, who have a gigantic conflict of interest because it makes them more money to see stadium subsidy deals go up. So they own this firm that runs around and argues for stadium subsidy deals. Uh, it's giant and gross. And to be clear, every, every independent look at stadium subsidies has found that they don't work in any meaningful economic sense. They don't create jobs. They don't create income growth. They don't do anything worthwhile. One of the most studied and most like beat to death areas of economics, and it's almost unanimous across the board. Like there's no, there's no debating the economic research on this question anymore. It's purely one of politics and perception and, and ultimately, right. And this is the part I'm most sympathetic to again, communities don't want their teams to leave. And, you know, I'd argue maybe that no one's really going to cry if the Phoenix Coyotes leave Arizona. Because they're, they're Arizona Coyotes now. I apologize. I'm sure somebody's going to call me on that. They're now the Arizona Coyotes. I know this. Sorry. I, yeah, I don't know how heartbroken too many folks are going to be over that because then they play in a 5,000-seat college arena at the moment. I, I grew up in, in northern New Jersey, and it looked for a time. I'm a big hockey fan. It looked for a time like the New Jersey Devils were going to leave and go to Nashville when I was a kid. And it was heartbreaking, right? It's horrible. You don't want that to happen. And like politicians, again, don't want to be the ones who lose their team to some other city. Um, and that's what facilitates this gigantic, gigantic scam. But I, I, I'm hopeful that the public is increasingly seeing that this is the case. And when these things come up for public vote, they almost always get voted down. Like the public gets it. You can trust people to understand the dynamics here. Well, what would happen if the New Jersey Devils did that same thing today? They said, we might go to some other city in another state unless we get X dollars. What would your position be? I mean, should it be for people who love that team, should the position be, no, we're not paying you one red cent, you know, you make it on your own or you can leave? Or should it be, do you think there is a reasonable amount of subsidy that the public should pony up for teams Beyond which, you know, these larger numbers, it becomes unreasonable. Which which way would you say right now? I can't imagine a stadium subsidy deal that I would support in any way, shape, or form. It's just the sad reality of of the business. And right, like ultimately this model of economic development needs to go away. And I have worked with a group of lawmakers at the state level. Uh, who have tried, and it's really hard uh, to do this, but they've at least talked about and gotten the ball rolling of making a kind of agreements between states that these sort of things won't happen. States won't use economic development centers to steal businesses from each other. So that's really encouraging. But yeah, the, the, on the stadium front, there's just no way in which that's a good expenditure. And, and unfortunately, even in that scenario, me as the New Jersey Devils fan would have to say, you know what, it is a much better use of that money to do almost literally anything else with it, right? If you think about for a billion dollars, how much healthcare you can provide, how many schools you can build, how many right. teachers you can pay, how many fire stations you can build, how many potholes you can fill, like pick your thing. I almost don't even care like, what it goes to. Small business grants, like, you know, I'm a not really a tax cut guy usually, but even cutting taxes would be better than this use of money. Like there's just, it just does not pay off in any meaningful sense. So it's really hard to see a world in which I would throw support behind anyone, even if it were my favorite team. And again, now I live in, in Washington, D.C., and I go see D.C. United play at Audi Field, which received about $150 million. And I can like fully acknowledge that that was a fine deal for me, Pat, the individual who likes to go to this stadium and can afford it and likes to watch this team play. Horrible deal for the city. Shouldn't have happened. And if that meant D.C. United went away, I'm like, eh, that's probably better for the city. I also want to touch on your most recent newsletter you posted on August 2nd a column called Break Up Big Title Insurance. Big title insurance is a phrase I'd never heard before. I've heard of 
big tech. I've heard of big pharma. There's big everything these days. But I didn't know there was big title insurance. If anybody's bought a house, you know you have to buy title insurance during the home buying process. That's about all I knew when I started reading this. So what is big title insurance and why do we need to break it up? Title insurance, in theory, protects you, the home buyer, from claims to your house that might arise later. So if like some long lost heir of the previous owner pops out of the woodwork and says, actually, this is my inheritance. It's my house, not your house. Uh, that's what title insurance is both supposed to protect both you and your lender from. That's the theory. In practice, it's this very expensive financial product that costs several thousand dollars, is almost never used. The title insurance industry as a whole pays about 3 to 4% out of the monies it collects and premiums every year out in claims. That's compared to 80 85% from health insurance companies, which we know are the most generous beneficial corporations on the planet, right? But comparatively, health insurance is paying wildly more in claims every year. So it's almost never used. The industry is controlled by just a handful of big firms. The big four firms control about 80 to 85% of the market. And one of the reasons they've been able to build that power is because while you, the home buyer, are the ultimate consumer of this product, you aren't actually the one who sets the price or decides what to pay for it. The whole system is built on a kind of nasty, corrupt, gross series of kickbacks between the title insurance companies and real estate agents, mortgage lenders, and, and everyone else kind of in the home buying chain. So the title insurance companies take all of the money that they collect and they toss it out and essentially bribes to all these other players in the industry in order for those players to refer customers back to the title insurance company. So there's no actual meaningful shopping for this insurance product going on. Everyone just kind of shows up at their house closing and pays for it because they have to. <laughs> And you said in the piece that there's actually an incentive for the price to go higher because the kickbacks then get bigger. Yeah, the way the way to claim market share is to raise your price, which like for anyone who understands like Econ 101, it like should make your head explode, right? Anyone who's read it like basic high school economics textbook, like that's not how any of this supposed supposed to work. Um, so the interesting thing, and a, a friend of mine who does a lot of work on uh, financial product legislation uh, in Illinois actually clued me in on this is that back in the 1940s, the state of Iowa, uh, you know, the grand progressive bastion of Iowa, as we know it, uh, eliminated title insurance. They made it illegal. A bunch of title insurers had gone bankrupt in the state and caused all these problems. And so they just said, enough of this. We're not allowing this financial product to exist anymore. And then in the 1980s, as bank deregulation was occurring and banks were starting to be allowed to do business across state lines, which like fun fact, actually banks had to basically stay within their states pre-1980s and only post-bank deregulation were you allowed to have national banks like Bank of America or Citigroup or Truist or whatever they're called now. But so as national banks started moving into Iowa, they were refusing to do mortgage lending because they couldn't get title insurance. Instead of re-legalizing this industry, Iowa said, fine, what we're going to do is set up a public agency that will do this for super cheap for everybody and like deal with it, banks. That's what you're getting. And it's, this system still exists to this day. It's $175 flat rate up to mortgages, uh, up to $750,000 in Iowa. You get it from Iowa Title Guarantee. It's a kind of public agency, you know, finance bank. And that's it. And so it's dramatically cheaper than it is everywhere else across the country. Uh, works perfectly fine. The banks every year come in and try, uh, and the title insurance companies come in and try to uh, blow the system up and re-legalize title insurance in Iowa. And they're always unsuccessful because actually the current public system is really popular. And you know, folks, folks look at it and say, I could pay $175 or I could pay $3,000 like they pay in you know, New Jersey and Jordan. No, thanks. Let's not do that. So it's a really good model and something that like progressives need to get comfortable with. Like some industries just don't need to exist, right? There's really no reason for this title insurance industry in its current incarnation to exist at all. And you should be perfectly fine and comfortable with saying, actually, like, forget it. This is something that the state can do simply and easily and cheaply. It's ultimately the state that guarantees property rights anyway. So if you don't want forget this industry. Yeah, that's a theme I hear in what we're talking about in this interview, whether it's data centers from Amazon or it's sports stadiums or it's big title insurance, the pushback comes from citizens who are banding together and public-minded officials, government officials who are willing to do the right thing. 
And it can be done. You know, like you talked about the Sugarloaf Alliance in Frederick County issuing the FOIA request and digging in and publicizing all the corruption uh, within Amazon and its dealings. There is a possibility to push back and to win. And this stuff is politically popular. And I should give a shout out since we're talking New York stuff. The last two years in the New York State Senate, uh, Senator Michael Giannaris has sponsored a bill to ban non-disclosure agreements in corporate subsidy deals. No more NDAs in these deals. It has come up for a vote in the state Senate each of the last two years, and each time it passed unanimously. <laughs> each year, each of the past two years, unanimously agreed the New York State Senate to ban non-disclosure agreements in economic development deals. It has not gotten a vote in the state assembly yet. But this is not a thing that people are comfortable voting against. They do not want to say, yes, it's totally fine to have public officials bound by NDAs when they're doling out your money. Like people do not want to vote that way. They want to vote on the other side of that. Actually getting it in a vote in the assembly would be amazing. But yeah, it's come up in the state Senate twice in New York, unanimous both times. Tell us a little bit about the American Economic Liberties Project and how that fits in with what you're doing with Boondoggle. Totally, yeah. So it is a research and advocacy organization that focuses on uh, decreasing the power corporations have over the economy and our democracy. So we work on policy and advocacy around that idea, around decentralizing power, around getting corporations out of the political process. Uh, we have a team that does federal work. I lead our state and local work. We have folks who do the political stuff. We have a bunch of really great thinkers who do the policy stuff. Um, we have a bunch of lawyers who both file amicus briefs in big, important corporate power cases and also work on the policy side and make sure I'm not trying to do anything too stupid. We've, we've existed for about three years. It's a really great shop. It's full of really great folks. Um, I think we've been really effective in getting the word out there. Um, and yeah, any support would be greatly appreciated. How do people get in touch with you and, and your work on Boondoggle? Yeah, so it's boondoggle.substack.com. Uh, you can drop me a comment on one of my pieces there. I am also on, for the time being, while it exists, Twitter, X, whatever the heck it is. I am Pat underscore Garofalo. The underscore is really important. If you don't use the underscore, you end up messaging a Republican member of the Minnesota House of Representatives. Don't do that. We don't agree on very much, <laughs> um, but my direct messages there are open. So as long as that platform exists, you can always get in touch with me there. Uh, but the newsletter is actually probably the most quick and efficient way to get in touch with me. And I really encourage folks to do that. I think one of the most important parts of my job is building this network, not just of folks in office who are elected, though that's really important, but also of just everyday citizens who are interested in stuff because the the intelligence sharing about what works and what doesn't from place to place in these fights is hugely, hugely important. So sharing tactics that have been successful, that haven't, if you see one of these deals happening in your community, I can connect you to folks who have successfully fought them off, who haven't, but who have learned a lot from engaging in them. And so that part of the, the gig is really, really important and really useful because it does take a kind of like collective knowledge of everyone who's worked on this uh, to, to, to make these deals go away. Well, you're doing great work, Pat, and I look forward to future issues of Boondoggle and would recommend it to Tectonic listeners. Thanks very much for being on the show today and hope you'll be back on the show again sometime. Anytime. Always happy to talk about this stuff. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining eight minutes of the show. And then the great Dave Mandel comes into Studio A with his prog rock show called It's Complicated. I hope you will stay tuned for that. After Dave, we've got the great Dan Boda with Vocal Fry. And then after that, Daniel Blumen. Taking you all the way to midnight Eastern time. Great programming as always on a Monday night here at WFMU, the Magic Factory. I want to say thanks to Pat Garofalo for coming on the show and talking to us about what he covers in his Boondoggle newsletter, all the various corporate scams, asking taxpayers to fund various corporate projects that really do not need the funding, 
but taxpayers end up doing it all too often because taxpayers don't know that that's what the deal is because there's a non-disclosure agreement in place and even if they get an inkling about the project it's couched in all sorts of blue sky promises that take years to not come to fruition so that years later people realize ah it was a scam it was a scam the whole time but by that point the corporation already got rich and the politician got reelected and did whatever they needed to do it's just not a great feedback loop so uh i'm so happy that the american liberty american economic liberties project where pat garofalo works is doing the work and helping to organize and communicate with other advocates and their local groups like the Sugarloaf Alliance that uh, Pat mentioned earlier based in Frederick County, Maryland. And I, I mean, who knows how many of those local and regional groups there are just doing the difficult work day in and day out, trying to pass the word to citizens that there is a better way to go about development than as, uh, what did Pat call it? Economic development brain. Uh, there's a better way than that. There's a better way to build out our infrastructure than to hand millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to a trillion dollar company and ask them to put in a data center that will then have all sorts of negative effects on the community and the local economy and so on. On the comment board, we got an interesting comment from Mr. Corey LLC, who writes, I live in Tempe, Arizona. Remember we were talking about the sports stadium that, uh, that, that Pat wrote about in, in his Boondoggle newsletter. Mr. Corey LLC writes, I live in Tempe, Arizona, and we voted that scam down. The way it was structured, the stadium deal had to pass the city council and then go to a public vote. And it passed the council unanimously. Ugh. <laughs> That's my comment on that. Ugh. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that it, it passed unanimously, but it obviously did not pass the public vote unanimously. And that is that is just a testament to, the, as I said at the end of the interview, this, this theme I get from Pat's writing is it is possible for citizens to band together and vote these clowns out and vote these, these terrible deals down so that we get a little, a little more justice in our local economies. Uh, rather than tipping the scales completely in favor of trillion-dollar corporations, actually starting to support, well, as Pat said, you can do anything with that, with that money that you didn't give to Amazon. You can do anything. You can build a, a hospital. You can build new schools. You can give small business grants. You can fix potholes. Uh, you can you can you can fund the the food pantry for for people who don't ha- have enough food. I mean these these should be our priorities. To be to be clear, these should be our priorities: is to help people, not to hand millions of dollars to corporations that are already worth a trillion dollars. I mean, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? What is wrong with our priorities that we continue to fund the the richest, most powerful actors in this economy? It's shameful. And so I'm so happy to spotlight the work that Pat and his group do. And um, if you know of other people out there who are doing good work like this, send them my way. um, And maybe we'll do another show at some point talking about this. I think this is a really important topic, how we are allocating our funds in in this country. And all too often they're being allocated to go right back to big tech, which is exactly where they should not go. Um, that is about all the time I have this evening. Um, I think next week what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to do an update show on some past shows because there are a number of news stories that have come up that I look at that and I go, ah, that's an update on the show about X. There was an update on, there's a bunch of updates actually on WeWork, for example. And uh, I can't do a whole show on WeWork, but I could do a whole show on updates on things like WeWork. So that is the plan for next week. And I hope you'll join me then. And please, as I said, stay tuned for uh, Dave Mandel. And it's complicated. Uh, The outro this evening, I want to say thank you to station manager Ken Friedman for sending me a pointer to a song that aired on The Daily Show a little while back. It's It's a song by Aloe Black called I Need a Dollar. 
and it's it it, uh, it mentions Amazon and it also mentions Spotify and Apple and Google as another type of corporate concentration is the streaming music business where uh, artists are not being paid fairly. So we're going to listen to that right after I tell you that you are listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know exactly what to do. Avoid Apple. Abandon Amazon. Really, friends, abandon Amazon. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google. Have a great week, friends, and I'll see you next time. Oh yeah. <laughs> Welcome friends to another exciting installment of It's Complicated. I'm your host Dave Mandel. The show airs every Monday between the hours of 7 and 8. I'm in the unenviable position of following Mark Hurst and Tectonic. I proceed Vocal Fry, which airs at 8 p.m. and of course is followed at 9 p.m. by Daniel Blumen. Welcome. I'm going to start tonight's show with something French. Uh, this is a group called Ex Vitae, and they were a French band. They they only released one album in their lifetime, in their career, and it was uh, it was privately pressed. I think it was just put out on their own label and was uh, unavailable for years, and blah, 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 and so on and so on. And it was reissued... Uh, or it's available on Bandcamp anyway, on on the um, on the replica uh, replicas website, replicas label. I'm not sure if you'd even if you'd call it a label, but replica is is a great label. Let's call it that releases mostly out of print French rarities, avant garde, prog rock, and so on. So they've made this thing available. So go to their website, and I I recommend uh, I recommend them 
in general, period, replica. They release or re-release a lot of really, really great stuff. But this is one of them. So again, this is a group called Ex Vitae. They put out um, this album called Mandarin in 1978. And we're going to hear the title track from it. This is the group Ex Vitae. <laughs> 